VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as you know, you can listen to us every week from 10 to 11 live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. So this morning I have two guests. Uh, my first guest is here already, Mark Nepo. He has a new book called 7,000 Ways to Listen, and Mark has been described as one of the finest spiritual guides of our times. He's written several books, and uh, one of his, he is a New York Times number one best-selling author. Um, our second guest is going to be Jessica Valenti. Jessica is author of uh, her new book, and she's written several books as well, but her new book is called why have kids, which is a good question. Everybody thinks they should have kids, but she says it's not necessary. Um, she's one of the most high-profile young feminists in America, uh, Jessica Valenti. So we'll be talking to her after um, our chat with Mark Nepo. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. 7,000 ways to listen. I was telling my boyfriend I was going to interview you, uh, Mark, on 7,000 ways to listen. He said, uh, you need to uh, really take heed because I'm always talking. I'm not so sure I'm listening, but uh, um, as it's, it's important, and as you say, staying close to what is sacred. Why write this book after the whole series of books that, that you've written? Um, and you are a spiritual person, so how does this book fit into your whole philosophy? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think, <clears throat> first, it, it's always humbling that, you know, this is my 13th book, and over the years, I'm 61, and uh, not, not one book that I've started has been the book that I've wound up writing. I think that each one is a learning and a path, and I think, you know, most uh, writers, I don't know if they would admit it, but I think, you know, we, we write to learn what we need to know, not to tell everybody else uh, how to live, and I, I think you know, um, I've written a book, uh, or one of my earlier books was about courage, inner courage, and I think I wrote that because I needed to learn how to be more courageous. Um, and I think it's interesting that you know, <clears throat> um, I really needed to learn more and more how to listen and what that means because listening really is about opening our heart and our mind and bringing all of our presence so that we can get closer and closer to life. Mark, what was the defining, or was there a defining moment when you said, well, we have to listen? Um, you know, because that kind of implies, I don't know where you were personally, but as you said, as an author, they, you write really for yourself initially, I guess, whatever your journey is, and then obviously it draw in all of the rest of us. Um, so what I guess what motivated you at the time to write this particular book, 7,000 Ways to Listen? Well, I think that, you know, um, really uh, some of my, my early books were about uh, the Book of Awakening. And, you know, once feeling awake, my next book was about called The Exquisite Risk. So once we're awake, um, it felt like, okay, how do we live here more fully well it involves taking risk and that led to courage and through all of that it was like okay if if we chance and we're blessed for a few moments to be awake and to take risks and to find our courage then what well it really comes back to being here completely 
you know, everything we could want and need is right before us, even though it seems, you know, so amazing to think that, that it is right near us. So how do we do that? It's, it's by being open. You know, our, our eyes blink uh, and open and close hundreds of times a day. Our heart uh, and our lungs, you know, constrict and expand. And our wakefulness, we, you know, we get clear, we get confused, we feel alive, then we're numb. And I think that the, the practice of being human is one of return, of always returning to being open after we close, to always returning to feeling keenly after we feel numb or hurt. And so listening, which I really think is the first step toward peace, toward reducing violence, which listening, which means putting down our assumptions and our conclusions and our judgments and meeting the day as if we were the first man or woman to ever be here on earth, brings us right back into this miracle of being alive. Do you think, Mark, that today, and well, in our culture, in our society, it seems as you're describing what what spiritually sounds wonderful for us, kind of is our society. What we wake up to every morning is kind of in our daily lives, whether it's taking care of our families or going to work, is kind of antithetical to being able to do this. Or- well, I don't think I don't think it's antithetical. I think that you know the busyness of daily living. Uh, puts things between us and the immediacy of what matters. And so it's in the rhythms of our personal practice of how when we speed up, we need to slow down. When I stop listening to you, I need to stop and open up. Um, you know, it's like a window gets dirty and we have to clean it so we can see through it again. You know, uh, iron gets rust. Trees get moss. It's the nature of life that living covers us over and feeling and being and opening our heart cleans us again. So I think this is the cycle of life. And so when I know when I feel like um, I'm kind of far away from things, I know I need to slow down. And, you know, when I feel uh, afraid... Um, there's a part of us that wants to speed up and run, and actually we need to slow down and be where we are. Um, so these are all, you know, the most universal things are also all very, very personal. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting in our election season right now, and regardless of parties, you know, and, and positions, it's so uh, amazing to me that, you know, if uh, nobody's listening to each other, you know, we, we need the best of everybody's thinking to meet the complex problems of our time. And I think the challenge is on all levels for us to stay in conversation and not to kind of have this dual monologue that keeps happening. Um, and, and we all know that we do that. We do that in our own lives, don't we? Yeah, we do that as individuals, and I think with our family, with our friends, uh, and I, I sort of getting this picture as you're as you're talking of that we kind of talk at each other, and maybe this is, rather than as you say, rather than listening, listening. But how do you go about doing that? How do you, you know, how do you 
you know, we're well, not doing it, as you say, politically. We're not doing it. The candidates are not doing it. We're not listening. It, countries you know, don't think, listen I, to one another. Mm, I think one of the one of the things, and these are quiet braveries, you know, that no one would know if you did or not. But one of one of the things is, you know, the the courage to have faith that who and what you are won't vanish if you listen to something different than your own opinion. You know, that I don't have to, when we're talking, if you are some, if you're a different faith or a different party or, or from a different ethnic background, that, that if I encounter you who, and I listen to understand what is this life before me that's different than me, that I won't vanish because I let something different in. So I think some of some of our resistance is because of our insecurity, because we, you know, we don't have a solid enough sense that who we are uh, won't won't disappear. Um, I have this. I want to. I'm listening, and I have a question now. This yeah. it made me. How did you? Mark, how did you get so wise? I mean, how? What was the process? How did you? You know, how were you able to get to this point? Well, I think you know, uh, and you know, uh, in my, and you might have run across it in my writings because I've written about this. But you know, I'm I'm a long term uh, cancer survivor. It's been almost 25 years, and so I'm 61. And this is in my 30s, and. Um, and my journey, because uh, I lived in Albany, took me through Albany Med. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that I was busy in my thir- mid-30s trying to contribute, trying to, you know, find my way and um, be of some use in the world, trying to change the world. And suddenly life changed me, you know. And so I think great love and great suffering bring us, against our will often, closer to what it means to be alive. And the truth is that the more we experience, the greater our compassion. So having been through almost dying and a life-threatening situation, I am forever, I can't help it, I am forever open to people um, who are going through things. You know, uh, I went, here, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, what you went through in your 30s, of course, is is uh, would be terrifying for most of us and scary and the whole, you know, and, and death and loss and all of that at, at, at a young age. Do you, and I can understand how that, that, that experience would be, you know, a defining moment for you. Do you, does one have to have that kind of an experience to be able to do uh, to, to be able to listen, to be aware, to be awake, to do all the things. No, that you just no, and I think this is a myth, a romantic myth that you've probably heard. You know that. Yeah, the social you, worker, I hear it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that you know, oh, you need to suffer if you're going to be an artist or this. What we need to do is live, and that means being open to the full human experience. But it doesn't have to. You know, cancer is a disease. There's no reason to glorify it. But it's the space that it opened that is holy. And this could be, this could happen by the loss of a dream or the loss of a loved one or, and it doesn't have to be lost. You know, we can be thrust into a sudden, uh, unexpected 
wonder or love that changes if we let it in how we see ourselves in the world um, it doesn't have to be even you know it might not even be visible so no, yes I, I appreciate your question because it's important not to deify suffering um, I think that you know like gravity there are two major ways that human beings grow one is by shedding by taking off what gets in the way and this is where the subtitle for my new book uh, seven thousand ways listen staying close to what is sacred comes from because the original definition of the word sacrifice and this is very interesting it originally meant to give up what no longer works in order to stay close to what is sacred now that that's amazing because it implies that we don't stay the same. And the way that a butterfly emerges from a cocoon, it doesn't mean the cocoon was false. It means the cocoon served its purpose. So we go through things that when we cling and hold on to cocoons that have already served their purpose, whether it's histories or memories or wounds or ways of thinking, that gets in the way of our listening. The other major way that we grow is by being broken open. And, and you know, like X and Y chromosomes, we will both shed and be broken open through, throughout life. And it's how we really meet our experience that determines how alive we are. You know, I want to get back to the first one because it, it, you sort of sacrifice because the connotation of sacrifice, or at least my understanding, it has kind of a negative connotation, which is, and you just put it in a very positive way. Sacrifice is really just being able to let go of that which is no longer useful to us so that we can go on and and grow, I guess, uh, in more meaningful ways. Um, but sacrifice is particularly in, in our society today. No one wants to, what they consider, sacrifice has a, a really kind of has gotten a bad rap. Well, I think that, you know, mo so many uh, concepts and words over time have been diminished, and that's part of, you know, each generation has a chance to reclaim what they really mean. And, you know, there is a sacrifice, of course, as we know, especially in, in, in times of conflict or war where people literally give up their lives for the sake of the community or the whole. That's um, unbelievable. But this original notion of sacrifice, this inner notion of sacrifice, is one of continual growth, that nothing alive stays the same. And therefore, we will be asked to give up what no longer works so we can stay alive and as immediate as we can and growing. Now, the shadow of that is what I think you know, you're bringing up here, is when we sacrifice um, for no good, when we accommodate and give ourselves over for nothing. And, I, and there's a great, great story about this that goes all the way back in, in uh, indigenous traditions in Polynesia, um, in, in the New Hebrides, it's a set of islands in the South Pacific. There's a story, human beings were considered <clears throat> to be immortal that they would live forever. And, and the way that they did this in the early cultures, the myth was that they would, when they would get old, they'd go to the river and take off their skin 
they'd shed their skin like a snake or a crab, and then they would be young again. And the chiefess of this this village, this tribe, Alta Marama, her name meant change skin of the world, she was getting old again, and she went to the river, and she took her skin off, and she left it in the water. And as she turned to go back to her family, she noticed it caught on a stick, and she didn't think anything of it. And as she went back, her teenage daughter saw this young woman approaching, and you know, and she said that she was her mother, and she didn't recognize her, and she got very afraid and and angry. And her mother said, "No, no, no, you." In time, you will have to shed your skin too, and I will teach you how to do this, and and it'll be fine. But her daughter couldn't be consoled and was actually repulsed and was so upset and angry that Ultima Rama went back to the river and put her old skin on to appease her daughter's fear and anger and worry. And it is said from that time on, human beings lost the ability to be immortal. That's quite a story. Oh, isn't that yeah. amazing? That is an amazing story, yeah. Wow. That, um, all right, this kind of leads me into my next question, because you talk a lot about joy. And you write, or you write a lot about joy. Let's talk about joy. What is joy? Well, I, I think joy is different than happiness. You know, I think that I'm coming to feel and understand, you know, as I get older, I think as we <clears throat> do uh, chant and work to be as present as we can, you know, I, I start to um, feel more than one feeling at the same time, you know. Um, I think in the depth, <clears throat> they <clears throat> they merge, they overlap. And I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think joy... Joy is like the ocean. It and all the different feelings anger, worry, doubt, contentment, frustration they're all waves in that ocean. So joy is very different than happiness. Joy is that openness of heart that holds all our feelings, that right sizes them, that doesn't let any one it doesn't stop us from feeling it, but it doesn't... So when I'm afraid, it, the fear is in me. I'm not in the fear. There's a big difference. What is the difference? Well, the difference is the difference between, um, you know, if I am in my fear, which uh, then fear is everything and it's controlling me and it's running my life, whereas if fear is in me... I don't deny it, but it doesn't take over. You it's, mean if the fear is internal rather than external? Is that what you're saying? Well, or? I I mean, <clears throat> no, I don't. I mean, um, a moment of terror is a moment when fear takes over everything. So imagine, um, and when that subsides, it's more right sized it has it doesn't go away but it doesn't it, it's now in perspective with the rest of life and all the things around us that are not afraid you know one of the things that so so it's natural when we're in pain or worry 
or in fear, that the initial rush of those sensations are overwhelming. Of course, that's what it is to be human, you know. But if we stay there, we are now living in the house of fear, in the house of pain. Now, we can't, we're, we're human. I can't just all of a sudden, if I'm in pain, say, oh, I don't want that pain to be there. But let me, let me tell you another story about this. And this is an ancient, uh, ancient uh, teaching story from India. So there's a, a master and apprentice. There's always a master and apprentice. There always is. <laughs> right. And so, and the master tells his student, who's always complaining about life, he says, look, get a handful of salt and bring it to me. Put it in a glass of water and come to me. Okay, so the student does it. Now he says, drink from the glass. Well, he drinks from the glass and he, he spits it out and the master says, what's the matter? And he says, it's bitter. He says, now, get the same amount of salt and follow me and carry it in your hands quietly. So they walk and the master leads the student to a lake and he says, now put the the salt in the lake and he does. And he says, now drink from the lake. So he kneels down, he scoops up some water and it drinks from it and it's dribbling down his chin and the master says well and he says oh it's fresh and the master looks at him and says stop being a glass become a lake stop being a glass become a lake and the, this I love that these are anonymous stories that have been told through the centuries so what what that is saying is that no one gets through life without the handful of salt, without the irritant, without the pain. We all, it may look different, you know, it may feel different in circumstance, but everybody has their part that they get. How can we relate this to, I always like to relate it to like very specific things. Well, say in, in my life, the, the aging process, and I, I think you do mention that as well, uh, the challenge of aging. Well, let's so yeah, let's take that. But let me so the the let me just say the 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 lesson from that story, and then let's try to apply it. So the lesson from that story is what he's saying is, you know, we can't eliminate pain, but when we experience pain, one of the only things we can do is enlarge our sense of things, because then the if we stay small, we will become bitter like the salt in the glass. If we enlarge our sense of things, we won't eliminate the pain, but we have a chance of right-sizing it. Or putting it in perspective, I guess that's kind yes, of a Western it way in of thinking. And kind of mellowing its edges because it's in a larger container. So an example um, for, and you know, for me is a, few years ago, I had a very, thank God I'm fine, but I had a, a real serious stomach ailment. Um, and during the, it was about six months, and, um, and my stomach would, uh, stopped emptying. And, and so whenever, it was like a backed up sink, and so and it took months to heal. And whenever I would eat too much, which was, we're talking very little, I lost lots of weight, I would unpredictably get these very serious pains in the middle of my stomach. So uh, this was during the summer, 
we have bird feeders out where we are, and once a year we have Baltimore Orioles come to our feeders. So I'm in my living room, and I'm looking at the bird feeders, and just as the Oriole comes, I get one of these attacks. Now, there we go. (laughs) Okay? You know, I can't deny the pain, but the pain that I was in is not all of life. And I didn't want to miss the Oriole who was only coming for one or two days. (laughs) So I had to somehow feel both. I had not to deny the pain in my stomach, but I had to realize in that moment, I'm not. That's not all I am. Not deny it, but not drown in it. And actually taking in the beauty of the bird wasn't just a nice thing. It was like that lake instead of a glass. It actually became part of the medicine. It didn't make the pain go away, but it enlarged my sense of things. And so I was able to feel both. It reminds me, I'm thinking as you're describing that, uh, the pain in your stomach and then watching the Baltimore Oriole. When you go, when you, and I have three kids, but when you go through a natural childbirth and, you know, there's a lot of pain, but the, uh, in order to help you to kind of dissipate the pain or not focus on the pain, the, 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 you focus on something else, something more pleasant, something, you know, whatever that is for you. And, you know, the pain is still there, but you, supposedly are able to open up your world to something else and focus on something else while you're going through labor pain. Yeah. And it does work to some extent. Well, and, and, the, thi- and the thing is that, you know, <clears throat> the heart, you know, we are trained um, to go from one thing to another and to shift in everything, but the, the depth of living keeps inviting us into a place where everything is unified. So when the heart is remarkable, and so is the mind, and the heart can hold, like that ocean, many, many things. And we often resist it because, you know, it's hard for us mentally to put it together. It doesn't, it's not neatly organized like all of our things in our kitchen cabinets. They're not in place. But the aliveness that, we're, that we are come into when we are asked to let things come together is a resource and that has a lot to do with resilience you know, you know I, I'm thinking about um, talking about loss and uh, I remember having a conversation actually he was a physician talking about um, and you, you obviously write a lot about loss but uh, that life really is a series of losses and, you know, from the time that you're born and you lose that you're not in your mother's womb anymore or you nurse your baby and then you stop nursing the baby and the baby has to separate and going to school. And so it's a series of losses. And it's kind of how we, I don't know how this fits into necessarily what you're talking about, but, like, it's how we adapt to those losses. Um, that well, yeah, I mean, I think that loss is, as you're saying, is a natural part of life. And... The thing is that every loss, just like every wound, is an opening. And when we feel that, it doesn't feel good when we're open. <laughs> but, but then the opening lets in light. 
and lets in other things. And this is just what we're talking about is not to deny the loss, but to also allow the the other things to come in. You know, during my cancer journey, I had a, a friend who also I had met in the cancer uh, journey in the cancer rooms um, who I just loved and became very close to. And when she passed away, I remember uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful spring day. And I felt so bereft that she had finally died. And yet the light was merciless in not letting me see only her death. Everything was just coming to life around me. I couldn't escape it. I didn't want, I wanted it to be a rainy day, you know? <laughs> that would have been um, more appropriate, but. <laughs> but actually, this was appropriate. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I remember during the depth of my, uh, my mm-hmm. painful journey, um, I realized at one point that I, I was broken, but to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. The rest of the world wasn't broken because I was. And, you know, if we wallow in that, it becomes self-pity. But if we open ourselves to the beauty of that, that means that everything else is a resource that can help me heal. So I think it's important to be obviously aware of that so that we aren't hanging on. Like, I mean, as I'm kind of getting a pit, you know, when your friend died, I mean, as you say, it opens up, I mean, there was a light. It opens up a whole other stage of your life of, you know, you go on to, to something else, having experienced her and your relationship with her. Um, we, I think we really do have to be aware of that because I think we do tend to just kind of cling to the what we thought we lost and, and we don't want to let go. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or not. But. Yeah, and I think we never, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, I, I don't think we ever get over things. I think we incorporate, incorporate them. them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that becomes the landscape of our heart, the garden of our heart. There's always, and the heart is so infinite that it, it, so much can live there. I remember reading about one of the mothers who lost her her daughter in uh, the flight over Lockerbie in uh, the, you know, Pan Am flight. And and she talked about that in terms of the healing process. Uh, It's it's exactly what you said. I mean, it's not that she gets over the loss of her daughter or the fact that her daughter died in that flight, but she incorporates it in part of her life, and then she has been able to go on. And it's always there, but it's a part of who she is. Um, And it's not letting go of her daughter, but just incorporating the, the loss and, and, and being able to go on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we are, I, 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 and a mystery that, that, that I can attest to is that, you know, any, throughout my life, and all of us, you know, every time that my heart has uh, been broken, uh, or I felt like the world as I know it, or has been shattered, and during those times it feels like, God, I, I, you know, like Humpty Dumpty, I don't think I could ever put myself back together. How am I going to go on? How am I going to? And yet I can, I can honestly say every single time, not only has my heart come back together, but it has been larger and stronger and more loving. 
Now, that that's the mystery of this amazing miracle of being alive. And, you know, I can't tell you how that works, only that I know it does work. Yeah, I think there's also an issue of control. And, and perhaps we have, you know, in the 20th or the 21st century, we have this not this really, I don't know, we have to, and particularly in Western thought, which is kind of contrary to Eastern thought, there's always this, like, we have to control whatever. When we, are, when we don't feel in control and we feel that something's happened to us externally or something caused us to be unhappy or out of control, we don't seem to be able to adapt to that well. Kind of given, yeah. Yeah, I th- well, this this is the this is the humbling uh, journey of, and one of the purposes of suffering. I think you know, suffering is like, uh, and again, I'm not deifying suffering. It's more like acknowledging gravity. I mean, it's a human form of erosion. You know, the elements, you know, mountains and rivers and trees are eroded. And, and then they reveal some of their beauty, and we go vast distances to see beautifully worn cliffs. But what they went through to get worn to that, <laughs> you know, um, and the same with human beings. I mean, we need each other to hold each other up so we, so we can be worn to our beauty. And it's an illusion that we have control. We are more in partnership with this amazing thing we call life. Um, our will is more like how do we steer in a river? We're not the river. And we are constantly broken of our, of our will, uh, throughout life. And I have come to think that this is a good thing because it breaks us of our self-reference. And on that, we're going to have to say goodbye because we have our next guest here. And I, I do, uh, and, and Mark, I want to mention your book again, Mark Nepo, because his new book is Seven Thousand. We've been talking about it this morning. Obviously, Seven Thousand Ways to Listen, staying close to what is sacred. Uh, it's been a real pleasure um, talking to you about the book. And um, I well, thank yeah. you. It's been yeah. a pleasure to talk with you too. Great. Um, okay, we will say goodbye. I'd love to have you on the show again. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we have lots to talk about. We have uh, our next guest, Jessica Valente. Why have kids? Uh, this is a topic of interest to me, I'll tell you, because uh, when I decided to have kids, I thought long and hard about it. But why have kids? A new mom explores the truth about parenting and happiness. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. It's the Catherine Zox Show. Don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. 
A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is my next guest, Jessica Valenti, author of Why Have Kids? A New Mom Explores the Truth About Parenting and Happiness. And Jessica is considered one of the most high-profile young feminists in America. That's quite a uh, title. Uh, She, in her book, takes on the controversial but necessary question, and I think it is definitely a very necessary question, why have kids? Because apparently there are statistics that say that parenting is not making kids happy, but making parents happy, but is making Americans unhappy. Americans who have kids get more unhappy, not happier. So, uh, Jessica, um, poses the question, um, about modern parenthood. Why are we having these kids if they're making us unhappy? Amongst other things. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. And you're the mother of one daughter? I'm the mother of one daughter. She's two years old. And I'm the mother of three sons. Wow, that's great. Yeah, you are much older than that. But uh, <laughs> interesting book because it's so, you know, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, and, you know, we're different generations. It's so true. Every, most of the women in my generation who thought actually thought a lot about having kids, I'm a baby boomer, in our 30s, decided to have children and thought that this was, you know, the timing was right. It's, you know, time, we had our, you know, we we're in the process, established ourselves in our careers, and then had kids. And many of us were very, were miserable. So, um, and you are of a different generation, but it seems that the, you know, uh, things haven't changed much. No, it does. It, it doesn't really feel that way. You know, it's 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 unfortunate. It's it still seems to me that parenting is thought of as the kind of default expectation rather than a proactive decision. One of the most kind of shocking statistics I came across when I was researching the book was that a third of American births are unplanned. Um, So there's a tremendous amount of unplanned parenthood still happening. People, you know, especially women, think that you kind of have to have children. It's just the next thing that you do. So we're not necessarily really kind of putting those critical thinking uh, skills to use before we make that decision, if we make the decision at all. But what you, I think in the book at least, it seems to me you talk about like there's this kind of American ideal of parenting. So even if you decide to have, if you actually decide I'm going to have kids or if you have a child, you know, and it wasn't planned, maybe the motivation isn't 
as important as the fact, the expectation of what parenting is about. Somehow, you know, that we parenting seems to are, it's it's the expectations that it's going to be kind of like this joyous thing, and everything in our lives is going to be perfect once we become parents. And that's what's not true, especially with women. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. It's the expectation that's really doing us in. You know, it's it's not only expected that we will want to have children, but that once we do have children, it will be the most joyous, fulfilling, wonderful, amazing thing of our lives. Um, and of course, children do bring you a lot of joy, but parenthood also comes with a tremendous amount of struggle and hurdles. Um, and I think that disconnect between the ideal of parenting and the reality of what parenting actually looks like for most of us. Um, is really what's making people unhappy when that expectation doesn't really pan out. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I think this is, you know, the media contributes to that. Um, maybe our own mothers contribute to that. Even even friends and, and other family members, you know, it's like, well, now you have your baby, you should be happy, you should be content, you should be joyous and all of those things, and that's not necessarily true. And, you know, you feel guilty if you're not, I think you talk about in the book breastfeeding versus not breastfeeding. They set up all these sort of shoulds for mothers, and uh, if you if you don't breastfeed, then you're a bad mother, and if you don't stay home, you're a bad mother, and if you uh, do stay home, you're a bad mother, and so we have... <laughs> You can't do anything right. It's true. You know, the standards have become completely impossible. If it's not one thing, like breastfeeding, it's another thing, as you said, like, you know, working outside the home or if you're staying at home. Um, there's really no winning. And the amount of guilt and shame and anxiety that comes along with that, um, especially for women, is is just incredible. And, of course, it's it's totally unnecessary. So how do we get into this kind of perfect mother model, as you describe it? I mean, you know, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of it is, is the harder question. I think that, that we've gotten into it um, because the way we think about parenthood today is much different than in the past. You know, Americans used to have children to raise good citizens, to, you know, contribute to the community, to, um, you know, maybe have a kid to help out on the family store, help out on the family farm. And today, the number one reason that Americans give for why they want to have children is for the joy of it. Um, so that is a completely, you know, kind of different idea today. People are having kids because they want to raise little soulmates, which is too big of an expectation to put on kids, too big of an expectation to put on parents. Um, so for moms in particular, I think when you're having a kid to make you happy, to fulfill your life, and it, and it doesn't necessarily fulfill your life 100% because how could one person ever do that? You feel guilty and ashamed. So I think that that is a part of it. Um, but, of course, I also think that all of the, the kind of, quote, unquote, mommy war issues um, that, that seem to get played out in the media time and time again are really a distraction for women. You know, so long as we're busy kind of fighting each other about, you know, whether your kid or should be still be taking a passy, then we're not focusing on the bigger structural issues that could actually change parenting for the better, like paid parental leave and um, affordable child care, things like that. So we're not really addressing the issues. And, you know, we talk about the reason for having kids, like in the 20th century or the 21st century, to make us happy, to make us not to work on the farm or to, um, you know, uh, be part of a family structure that really you need to survive. It's, it's also true about marriage. I mean, people get married yeah. or, you know, 200 years ago they got married for financial reasons, for family reasons. I mean, they didn't get married so that the other person could make them happy. It was yeah, uh, yeah much more practical. 
and uh, and also I, I guess also for having children. So this is a, we live in a we haven't really adjusted, or have we? Maybe we I don't know. Have we haven't evolved? I guess, um, and we've kind of created this, as you say, this kind of like kind of a false sense of, of what children can do for us. So what do we do? You know, I I think it's a matter of focusing more on the community rather than the individual. You know, I think that unfortunately we've we've lost kind of the it takes a village mentality um, of of raising children, and it's become all about this American individualism, which kind of increases the pressure. So I think that we really need to focus on taking a community approach to child care, whether that means you know not thinking that you need to be the single most important caregiver in your child's life. Um, to fighting for better education policies, not just for your own child, but for the children in your neighborhood and your state. Um, just thinking about it in a in a broader way. But it's you know it's a tall order. The the cultural expectations and standards are are really deeply ingrained there. So I don't think that's something that's going to happen overnight. Well, one of the things you say, Hannah, this is I think the key to the whole thing, at least for me. I think we see mm-hmm. you say we should see parenting as a relationship, not a job. And, yeah, you know. Yeah, sorry. go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's it's funny because I've taken a little bit of slack for that. Um, but, of course, when I say parenting shouldn't be, we shouldn't frame parenting as a job, that's not to say I don't think it's a tremendous amount of work, right? Of course, parenting is hard work. But I do think that we do parenting a disservice when we frame it that way. You know, our child is not our work product. We don't have a boss. We're not going to, you know, put in reports, Um our child, we have a relationship with our child. It's 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 not about it being a job. And I think that when we frame it as a relationship, we're we're honoring um, our children a little bit more. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think my own mother once said, and I, I quote her all the time on this because it's related to this. You know, um, that, you know, if you um, many women will say, "Well, I'm, I'm staying home uh, with my with my with my child uh, because." Um, they need me, and you know it's better if I'm home with them rather than if they go to a babysitter or a nanny or childcare or whatever. Um, and my mother said, "Well, think of it. All, you you want to think of it also in terms of you and your relationship with your child. The child will probably, do, you know, if if it's a it, your your child can have a nanny, your child can go to a daycare center. You can be home with them all the time, and it can be great either way or not so great. But you're the one who misses out if you." I mean, or what's it going to do for you in terms of the relationship? Let's say you're not, if you choose not to be uh, with your baby for the first five years or whatever. Think about that, just in terms of your own relationship. How does it affect you? I'm not, you know, it, you just have, you know, think about it in terms of you, not necessarily just in terms of of, of the of your child or the baby. I don't, I don't yeah, think, I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's a point that really gets lost. In our culture, because we focus so much on the child as the center of our universe, which, of course, you know, is is understandable, but we need to remember ourselves as individuals and as people with individual needs as well, and that that's an important part of the, the relationship. So what have you learned from, what have you learned from writing this book? Because, I mean, not you, and the book was not academic only. It was also your own very personal experiences with uh, well, your own daughter. Uh, you were going to have this perfect birth, which didn't end up to be the perfect birth. So you started out uh, uh, with a, a different kind of a situation than you thought. So just, you know, we don't have that much time left. But talk about that, like your own experience, because it seems to me that's one of the motivations for writing this book. 
It was. It was It was a tremendous motivation. I started off thinking I was going to write something completely different. And then, <laughs> as you said, you know, I, I thought my birth was going to be, you know, midwife-assisted and, and wonderful and, and that early parenthood was going to be amazing. And I got very sick um, late in my pregnancy. And my daughter was born three months early and, and spent a few months in the hospital and, and had health problems. So it was a very scary sort of fraught entry into parenthood. Um and of course, that's an extreme example in my experience, but a lot of the parents that I spoke to had some sort of variation on that experience where they, they said, you know, this is just not what I expected. Um, and I think that reality, and again, that disconnect between the ideal and the reality um, is part of what is making parents unhappy, and so it, it really deserves some further inquiry and conversation. Do you think young women today do get together and support one another? I mean, you know, all of the the feeling of, you know, what happens when you do have a baby, the feelings of of guilt when you don't want to be with your baby or exhaustion or, you know, really examining those feelings and getting support from other women. Are are women always uh, competing? I always found that they were competing, you know, your baby, you know, which baby breastfed the most or, you know, (laughs) my kid is reading at one and a half and, God, my kid isn't even, you know, I... That didn't read till they went to school, and you know, women and, get, and getting into that competition kind of stuff. I, I do think it still exists, and I do think that we could do a better job um, of supporting each other. Unfortunately, even though we've seen things, you know, like with the advent of the internet, there are all, all of these kind of motherhood communities that are there, and that's wonderful. It doesn't seem to me like there's a tremendous amount of space for women to talk about. Um, kind of the tough feelings that can come along with parenthood, as you said, you know, if you're feeling a little ambivalent, um, if it's not all you, you thought it was going to be, um, those are still really stigmatized emotions for mothers to have. Yeah, and, you know, that's really surprising to me. As you say, you know, I mean, there's all this information. You know, you can connect with other women on the net, uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't do it in the same kind of way, and you would think that that would help and bring women together. And but you're saying it statistically or in your experience, that's not really true. Women are still. Uh, I, st- I still think that there are a lot of communities of judgment um, that are out there, and that's not to say that that there aren't communities that aren't you know wonderful. There are, um, but that hasn't been my experience with the with the vast majority um, of of online spaces, at least. But I do think that there the platform is there. You know, if we could just build the will, um, I, I think it's totally possible to, to have those kinds of support systems. I think the one thing that really has to be made clear is the fact, I don't know if you agree with me, but there are lots of different ways to parent. I mean, you take care of your kid, you love your kid, uh, you're, you know, you provide a secure environment, whatever that is. Those are the kind of the general overall good stuff about parenting. But the rest of it is just open to who you are what kind of a person you are. I mean, uh, there are so many other factors. You you might be a mother at 40 or a mother at 20. You may Mm -hmm. be married, not married, gay, straight. But all of those different scenarios can provide wonderful parent. You know, you can be a good parent. It has to fit into your skill set as a parent. And if it doesn't, then everyone's going to be miserable. I absolutely agree. You know, I don't think there's one perfect way to parent, one particular ideology, um, you know, parenting ideology that works best. It really is about the individual, you know, but unfortunately our, our culture of parenting has become such that it's not enough that we love our kids and that we care for our kids. You know, we have to have the perfect child and the perfect parenting experience 24-7. Um, the, the pressure is just enormous, and again, it's completely unnecessary. So how do men fit into this? 
You know, (laughs) that's the big question. You know, I think that we don't talk about men enough in these conversations, and I tried to, to, to make sure that wasn't the case with my book. You know, men are more involved in parenting than ever before than in years past. Um, they want to be more involved parents. They want more work flexibility so they can be at home with their families more. Um, but still, we have the cultural stigma um, against men who, let's say, want to be stay-at-home fathers, and we still have the problem that the, the vast majority of care work is still being done mostly by women. Do you think that in your experience, Jessica, like men who do, let's say take those men who do stay home and they are the primary caretakers. Maybe there aren't that many, but we could probably look mm-hmm. to them. Do you think they get into the same kind of stuff that women get into? I mean, first of all, they're not going to compete on breastfeeding because they can't breastfeed, okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they, that's one topic that's out the door. And maybe some of the others as well. I mean, do you think, or are they more laissez-faire about it? Or the ex- they don't feel like there are expectations that are so binding? Or I, I was just curious if you've mm-hmm. had any experience with that I just don't, I, I don't think that they feel the same sort of anxiety and guilt that women are made to feel I really don't I think that there, there are certainly struggles that are unique to being a stay-at-home father um, but I don't think that the kind of identity crisis of if I don't do this perfectly I am not a good person I am not a good father comes along with with parenthood for men in the same way that it does for women yeah because they don't have to have the perfect birth mm-hmm. um, they don't, yeah, I'm thinking of a lot of these issues that women, you know, struggle with from the very beginning when it comes to parenting, which men really don't struggle with. Maybe the competitive stuff is like, you know, who reads first and all that kind of stuff gets into play. But I just wondered, you know, since there are more men actually staying home full-time, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what the differences were between men and women. So, um, well, what do we want to leave our listeners with well, I guess I would say, you know, what I what I hope with uh, that happens with the book is that it starts a conversation among parents who are interested in thinking critically about these issues, who are interested in ending the guilt and the shame that comes along with parenthood, um, and who are interested in creating change, um, not only in their communities, but, you know, on a broader level as well to, to help make parenting a little bit easier. When you, you also... Uh, Childless couples. What about childless couples? I mean, because there's always a judgment. I mean, you can feel it if someone says, "Well, we've decided we're not going to have kids. We don't want to have kids." Uh, you know, oh, you're selfish. You're, you know, all these things. You know, these kind of. Um, why aren't you? Is there something wrong with you? On and on. Um, so, how do we view childless couples? There is a real judgment, I think, towards them. There's a tremendous judgment. So it's amazing in this day and age that we still have that. But yes, you're absolutely right. Still say people without children, um, especially women without children, um, are seen as these kind of anomalies where we ask them, well, why? Why didn't you have children? Or, oh, you're going to change your mind or you're going to regret it or all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not a question that we generally ask parents. We don't ask parents, well, why did you have kids and expect them to provide some sort of explanation for their decision, even though they're the ones who are bringing people into the world. So I guess really uh, we have to, I don't know if this is a message in the book, but I think as parents and parenting, we just really have to be more tolerant to each other and change our expectations to parenting or towards parenting. And we really have to be aware and take a look at it and, uh, uh, you know, get, have an understanding of what we're doing and setting ourselves up, kind of as women, setting ourselves up for failure when it comes to, to parenting. 
Right. I think that's absolutely right. I think we should go in with, with very little in the way of expectations, if at all possible, um, and and just be prepared to, you know, to, to fight for the kind of parenting that you want, not only for yourself, but, but for other parents as well. Yeah, and I think if one reads the book, and the book is Why Have Kids, A New Mom Explores the Truth About Parenting and Happiness, uh, a lot of the answers are in your book, Jessica. It really is. It's a great book. Um, you know, I didn't mention that you are the founder of Feministing.com, um, and, and that's a website that I would direct list, uh, listeners to go to. It's F-E-M-I-N-I-S-T-I-N-G.com. Uh, any other websites you want us to uh, be aware of? Sure. People can find out more about my work at JessicaValenti.com as well. Terrific. Thanks for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Why have kids? A new mom, and that's Jessica, explores the truth about parenting and happiness. Jessica Valenti. Um, You've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, and uh, you can uh, listen to the show live every Wednesday from 10 to 11. That's Eastern Time, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Hope you had a good morning. Uh, enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.